Please turn with me now in the Old Testament to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18. And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. The name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help, and he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now, he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on their way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out, for this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people, so that you may bring the difficulties to God, and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws, and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, Rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. And Moses let his father-in-law depart, 
And he went his way to his own land. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful indeed for your word. We recognize that we are those who live in darkness. We are those who lack good advice. But we are thankful that your word gives us perfect and inspired advice and indeed command and good example. And Lord, how we pray that you would enable us to use these things to our profit. We pray, Lord, that we would consider the greatness and the perfection of the provision that you have made for your church And, Lord, that we might receive of it to our salvation and to our well-being until we go to our place in peace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come here to Exodus chapter 18, which has to do with Jethro's advice. And for context, we consider not only the relationship he had as, as Moses' father-in-law, but also the evident concern that he had for the nation of Israel. It is true. He himself was no native-born Hebrew, but very clear as we read, for instance, in verse 8, the concern that he had. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and the hardship that had come upon them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them, then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of Pharaoh, who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. He has a personal concern for Moses, and he has, yes, a concern for the whole nation. Now, his advice has to deal with a specific problem. And having heard the chapter, you know what that is. That Moses was personally dealing with the people. He was, in fact, all the people it seemed in one way or another represented were before him. From morning till evening with all their many little difficulties and issues. And in the words of Jethro, they were going to wear themselves out. The next day Moses sat to judge the people. The people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. Well, in verse 17, The thing that you do is not good. Both you and the people who are with you will surely wear themselves out. And he proceeds in to give, them, give Moses some good advice about the organization of God's people in order that Moses would not be worn out, in order that the people would not be worn out, but rather that they would be well governed and would come to their place in peace. Now, what do we think about this advice coming from one who, in essence, was a pagan? Well, as I say, it surely seems like he is embracing the word of the Lord. It surely seems that he is receiving the good news of redemption, that God has provided redemption for his people. When he hears about it, he rejoices and he praises God about it. What do we call that when we translate that into New Testament terms? We call that person a believer, actually. When you hear about the redemption purchase in Christ, and I, maybe I come to you and I say, oh, look, it's my father-in-law. Let me tell you about the Lord, that he has purchased redemption for his people, and I myself have been freed and I've been saved from Satan and all the, the works of the devil and my own sin. And if he rejoices and says, praise God, praise the Lord for the redemption that he's given, well, he's surely not too far from the kingdom and, and may well be a believer. 
So that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of this advice that we have to understand why it's good is because this is, as we're going to consider in the applications, the way God has designed us to be. God has always designed for mankind to be under good and orderly authority structures, even as he's enshrined them and incorporated them in the whole universe. So he has always created for his people, both in, the, in terms of the state and in the church, to be governed in such a way. So Jethro is not speaking some new and unheard of thing. He's only applying some principles that really in one way or another have been around since creation and uh, using them in a specific instance. And he, prefer, he qualifies what he, what he says with this statement, and the Lord, in essence, confirmed this. The Lord be with you. I'm saying this, but he's leaving the room for the Lord to confirm it because he's not in the position of God. And it seems to me that God did confirm all this in, in putting it in his word, in Moses enacting it, indeed, to the blessing of the people. And I think that we can rightly take Uh, That this is the word of God. Yes, it originally came from Jethro, who originally was a pagan. Um, But I think in God's goodness, this is the word of God for good uh, church government. Now, one other little qualification, because I'm calling this sermon Jethro's church government. I want us to understand truly that it's not exactly the same thing as New Testament church government. It couldn't be. Why? Because there had to be a place for Moses at the top, because Moses was a type of Christ. Now, Christ, we know, is the head of the church. He's the one who truly governs his church. You must believe that. Whatever we're going to say tonight about church government, believe me, what we say in the word of God, what we hear in the word of God, what we say in our confession, and what we really believe is that Christ governs his own church by his word and spirit. That's true. And Moses, as a type of Christ, had to be seen at the top. That's different with the New Testament church. We don't have some figure like a pope at the top of these things. And so what we see there is not exactly the same as what we have in the New Testament. But all the main essential features are there, and I want us to see them in our time tonight. So this is Jethro's church government, and there are three salient elements. There are three main points here. An educated church, qualified elders, graded courts. Educated church, qualified elders, and graded courts. If you ever wanted to know what Presbyterian church government is, by the way, that's exactly it, those elements in play. So first of all, there needs to be an educated church. There's the first part of his advice, actually, in verse 19. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God, and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. It begins with teaching, that they might know the law of God. Now, it's an intellectual teaching, the statutes and the laws, so it's very clearly a kind of of transmission of knowledge in theory, But beyond that transmission of knowledge and theory, there is also the more practical aspect. And show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. This is the totality of discipleship. As as Moses is both the, the intellectual and the theoretical knowledge, but also the more practical knowledge that they need to know in order to make good decisions to live their lives. And you can imagine how this works. If you have an ignorant group of people that don't have a clue 
they're going to constantly be coming to, to Moses with every little thing because they're living in a foolish way. They're going, for, they're going from one side to another down blind alleys. They're tripping over one another in these things. And they're certainly encountering many problems. And the first thing that needs to happen is that they learn, that they be educated. And notice that this is for the whole church. You may have read this in a sense of teach the, the ones that you're going to appoint as elders, but that's not actually the case. It begins with a whole church. And this is the comprehensive teaching program in the whole council of God that is necessary in order for this church government to work, either back then or now in the New Testament church. We, you can't have a good functioning church government the way that we, God has designed it if the people don't know the law of God. Now, of course, we know that there are some who would actually withhold the law of God, withhold the word. There are churches who actually keep the, want to keep, historically, want to keep the word of God from the, the hands of the people because there would soon enough be a check to the unchecked power of those uh, who have placed themselves in authority and have usurped the authority of Christ in the church. But no, we're the opposite. We need, we must have an educated church in order for this to work. And biblical church government demands and only functions when you have an educated church that knows the word of God. Everyone knows the word of God. And this alone is going to greatly reduce the burden of cases and all the pastoral problems that come before the elders and come before Moses because they'll know the word themselves. Now, an inevitable um, entailment or concomitant of this is that we value education. All right? So God's people from all that time long ago, we know that the covenant people of God according to the flesh should Jews have always valued education. Up to this very day, they value education. And, and we ourselves as God's people, God's covenant people according to the spirit, we value education. Now, the world doesn't do it for the right reasons. The world does it for economic benefit or some other sort of thing that they come up today for who knows what. We do it for the right reason, in order that God's church might be blessed. That's why we educate all of our people as much as we can. Now, of course, this applies more particularly to those who are going to be elders. So beyond the fact that we value education as a whole and particularly the word of God, even more so then do we value an educated ministry. And that has been an outstanding feature of the Reformed and Presbyterian tradition for um, since, since the days of, of Luther and Calvin, there has been an emphasis on the educated ministry. There has to be. Again, if you have an educated uh, church, you, the ones who you're going to send to be teachers and to have authority over them have to be even more educated. And therefore, we care about educating our ministers and elders. And I'll say more about that later in the application. So that's the first feature of this, an educated church, educated in the word of God, of course. And secondly, qualified elders. As notice in verse 21, moreover, you shall select from all the people. Let's just stop there, the selecting part, select from all the people. All right, this idea of selection. Do you know what that is? That's the basic idea of ordination. Some people don't like that term, ordination, because it sounds Roman Catholic. Well, friends, it's not. Uh, the Roman Catholic ordination is very, very, very different, uh, and it is, it is a wrong idea. Um, the idea, though, of, of the church selecting from among itself 
those who are qualified to be in office is what God has intended from the very beginning. So there is a selection, there is an ordination, and they have authority in the church that is different than the generality of the people. And let me say that there were, oh, by the way, already elders, because in verse 12 it says, Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. There already were elders. So the problem was not that this is some brand new concept. The problem seems that they were not qualified elders. They were not functioning rightly in the way that they, they should be acting. Maybe they were just elders in the sense of being older than the other people. Um, and they, they didn't know any better. They weren't any more able. They weren't called of God to do this work. And now this is the correction to that, that they should have qualified elders. So what are the qualifications that he mentions? Well, first of all, well, A, maybe able men. Same term used in verse 25, Moses chose able men out of all Israel. That's the summary term, able men. Now, contrary to the egalitarian age in which we live, in which we like to imagine that everyone has the exact same ability and therefore should have the exact same outcomes and all the rest of it, that is not the way God actually made us. God made us with widely different abilities. And there's nothing wrong about that. If you have less ability than someone else, what can you do? That's, that's what, how God made you. You live up, you maximize the potential that God has given you, whatever abilities he's given or withholding from you, that's all to the glory of God. And the things we should worry about, of course, are, uh, is being obedient to him in, in terms of the moral law and, and glorifying him in the things that we do. But there are different, differing abilities, and there should be um, the able men should be serving as elders. And then be such as fear God. This is the principal thing. It is not merely an amorphous kind of ability, but it begins with the fear of God, as we know from Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So if you want a more knowledgeable elder, you couldn't possibly begin with someone who fears neither God nor man, like that unjust judge that the Lord mentions in his parable. He's not going to be any good to the people of God. You need one who fears God, and that's the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And see, men of truth, those who understand the truth, who love the truth, we know that that is a principal thing, not merely a head knowledge, but of a heart to receive God's truth. They must be zealous indeed for God's truth. That's what the church unfortunately sometimes lacks. When the church gets weak, we turn to men who don't really care much about truth and have their priorities elsewhere and easily turn to error. But no, these must be men of truth and D, hating covetousness. Hating covetousness. Because in all times, we know that a bribe is the great enemy of justice. And these men serve not only in the ecclesiastical sense for the church, but deciding matters of the civil government, because those two things were together in Old Testament Israel, and if they were susceptible to covetousness, then that would turn their heart away from judgment and justice, as the word of God says. And then, E, let us consider the way these things match up with the qualifications for elders in First Timothy. So you know that in the New Testament church government, we have qualifications for elders given to us in First Timothy chapter 3. And I'll just read them to us. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, 
one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, the New Testament, as is frequently the case, is more fulsome, more detailed, but really those things in seed form are to be found in the four items that I mentioned uh, here in Jethro's advice. These are the qualifications, and these are the things that the Church of God back then and now and for all time must seek out, men who meet these qualifications to serve as elders. Well, we have a, a educated church, we have qualified elders, and finally then we have, thirdly, graded courts. Graded courts. And I, don't, I mean not that they're marked, but meaning that there are some at this level and some at this level and some at this level, different grades and levels of organization. It says in verse 21, And place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of ten. That's what I mean, the different grades that you find. And that's what Moses did. He chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And this graded organization, which is absolutely necessary. You understand that there were a couple million of people, by our estimation, it's not possible, even as Jethro said, for one man to, to even understand what's going on among all these people, let alone to adequately govern them. And so it is God's ordinary way then to set government at each level. And I'm going to mention this again in the, in the application, but the way it finds uh, embodiment in New Testament church government is that you have general assemblies and synods and presbyteries and sessions governing God's people at the different levels. And each one of these acts to the extent of their own competency, right? And let them judge the people at all times, then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. You see the idea. If the ruler of ten can handle the problem, the ruler of ten does. The ruler of ten can't figure it out, he sends it to the ruler of fifty and gets up. And if it's a really, really difficult, tricky matter, it eventually makes it all the way up to Moses, who makes then that decision on behalf as he is led by, by the Spirit of God. So this is the idea of graded courts in God's church. And if you do this thing and God so commands, and you will be able to endure, all this people will also go to their place in peace. Because that's, what is the, that's the result of biblical church government in action, is that there is peace. And let me just say that this is a crucial matter for us. Because unfortunately, um, the way that this, the, the devil typically tries to destroy churches is to take away peace and cause dissension. And even in places where there might be the semblance of an eldership, if, in fact, there is not an educated people who know the word of God and the elders themselves being qualified and those elders in functioning truly submissively and actively in those graded church courts before them and which the elders themselves are submissive ultimately to the word of God but also to their brethren acting in courts above them and the people then submitting to the decisions of the elders, apart from that, there will be no peace. We must be convinced of that. 
Now, do we find any uh, embodiment of there being graded churches, uh, graded church courts in the New Testament? Of course, that was the purpose of me reading from uh, Acts chapter 15. Because what we see, contrary to the idea that the local church is the end of the road and there's nothing beyond that, we in fact see that God established a church, uh, a larger gathering of the church, in order to, to bring the peace of, of the whole church. And we know in Acts 15 that certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now that's, that's heresy. Okay, that is works righteousness, that is contrary to the, to the gospel, and that must be opposed. And therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with him, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others should go up to Jerusalem. Do you see what it is? It's a hard matter. They had a dispute. They couldn't fix it at the lowest level among that session or even that presbytery, which is more likely the case. And so it had to be referred up in this, to what we might call the General Assembly. It was too hard of a matter, and so it had to be sent up. And then they debated the issue. The apostles and elders, they were acting collegially. It was not that one apostle, it wasn't that, that some proto-pope simply you know, decided what it was going to be. They all debated on this. And they had a moderator, yes, who was giving voice to the decisions that were being made. But he was not acting as a king. He was not acting as a pope. He was acting as moderator of this assembly. So it says in verse 22, it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church, they're speaking for the whole church, to send chosen men, there we are again, chosen men, through their own company, to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also called, named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they wrote this letter. And that letter didn't say, uh, we've been considering this, and we don't really know what to do. No, it says, here's what to do. And it doesn't say, we know what to do, but it's up to you as to whether you want to, want to receive it or not. It actually says, uh, this is what you're to do. And, and there's no question that they are expected to do this. That's because the, the local church eventually must submit to the decisions of the church uh, above them in these graded courts. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. For Verse 28, notice, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things which I then uh, uh, elucidate. Well, this is the idea of graded church courts. And that, friends, that's Jethro's church government. And in a nutshell, that's pretty much Presbyterian church government. Now, let me say by way of application that we ought to submit to God's authority structures. Right? Because we can learn all we want about church government, but we must submit to them. And I, I want, first of all, for you to understand that this is the way God deals with his people. It's always been that way. God provided order in the universe, even in creation itself. What does it say? Genesis 1.16. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to give advice to the day, to rule the day. And the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. Okay, so God has order. Every time you see it's dark now, and we have the, the moon and the stars ruling over that, determining times and seasons, and the sun during the day, that is the order that God has, has put at the very heart of the universe. 
And so it is in mankind. Not fallen mankind. Please do not think that this only happens when there is sin and fallenness that needs to be held in check. It was God's will from the very beginning that there be authority structures. In his creation of man and woman. In Genesis 2.18. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. A helper. And we see, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept and took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in his place. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They are utterly equal as as uh, being in the image of God. God made them in the image of himself. But you see, even in their creation, they're different. Adam was made from the dust, and Eve was made from Adam's rib. And she was made to be a helper, and Adam was made to have dominion. These things are different. It doesn't make any of us lesser. God himself says he, the third person of the Godhead, the eternal Godhead, is called the helper. Did you know that? The Holy Spirit, same word, same basic idea. And we know that the Son, as he takes on human flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, he, he's completely submitted to the Father's will in everything. We understand then that there's nothing ungodlike in the idea of there being different roles in these ways. But rather, God made these things to be in his image, and it is pleasing to him, even in an unfallen universe. So it was. And so there must be in the church. And we should submit to these things. God is given there to be. No, we're not uh, ecclesiastical communists or socialists. And neither are we papists. We don't have a pope. But we do have elders. And that's God's good provision. And we should submit to them. And I say that, yes, you should submit to elders of which I'm one. But I myself then must submit to the elders who are set above me in the presbytery. Well, we should submit to God's authority structures. They're beautiful, they're helpful, and it'll tend to our peace. That's the way that God has given so that we might make it to the end in peace. And secondly, let me just say then that we should particularly pray for our denomination, which is Presbyterian. And we we need an educated church. And we pray that the Lord would bless the teaching program of this church and all of our sister churches. We pray that the Lord in particular would bless the seminary. You understand, we haven't had a Presbyterian seminary in a while in the nation of England. All right, and a, 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 a seminary that actually believes in, in what I just said, in ordained men acting collegially in graded church courts as, as equals in this way. We haven't had that in a long time, actually. And we pray that the Lord would bless and enable us to produce educated men for the ministry of the future of our own church and of our sister churches uh, in this nation. And we certainly pray, don't we? On the eve of our next uh, meeting of, of the presbytery, sometimes we feel a little disconnected from these things. But friends, these, this is the church. When we meet in Sheffield, you understand that it is a meeting of this church because we are in unity with all those other churches. And we meet at a, just a different level. And you ought to be in prayer that we make good decisions for you and for your brothers and sisters. Well, let us now turn to Lord in prayer.
Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your goodness to us. We recognize that you have set in place good authority structures for us. We're thankful for the good advice that you and your providence enabled Jethro to give to your servant Moses. And Lord, that you confirmed this to him and and used it to the good of your people. And in various ways, these principles now stand in New Testament church government. And, Lord, as we understand these things and know them, how we pray, Lord, that we'd also submit and that there would be, would be peace, that we would not wear ourselves out with dissensions and disagreements and endless problems, but rather, Lord, this people would know the word of God, and particularly that the elders and ministers would be highly trained in, in this word and able rightly to teach. And, Lord, that you'd provide for the extension of your church There are all these many church planting endeavors and dozens more to come, we pray. And that, Lord, your your church, not just in a local sense, but in the broader sense, might be blessed and built up. And that it might, yes, be beautified. Not only functional, Lord, but functioning in the way, uh, the perfect way that you have ordained for her to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.